0: Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure weekly podcast. I'm pleased to be with you you again. And uh, here on the show, we're having John Kiriakou, CIA whistleblower and a friend to come on and discuss some particular stories that are in the news. Um, Also, I wanted to talk with him about the passing of a dear friend, and a larger-than-life figure, Dan Ellsberg. So thanks for coming on the show again.
1: Oh, thanks for the invitation, Kev.
0: And uh, I wish it wasn't, uh, you know, so sad, but also I will add that in the last week or two, as it had become clear that uh, we were in the final days of Dan Ellsberg's life, that I've had an opportunity to learn some things about Dan that I hadn't known and I'll also learn from you some things about Dan, and I'm looking forward to have you share a story. But before we go forward, I'd like to ask that you share what it meant to have Dan Ellsberg as a mentor and talk about, in particular, Dan Ellsberg as the kind of, I suppose, godfather of whistleblowers out there because we hear a lot of conversation about his role exposing the Pentagon Papers. Certainly, that's his definitive moment in his life, but less about what he was doing in the last 25 years of his lifetime when he was always there to provide outreach to whistleblowers who needed it.
1: You know, he said something to me once right after we first met, and this would have been met on the phone. This would have been like late 2007 or early 2008. He said, isn't it a shame to be known for something that we did in our 20s or 30s and then not really accomplish anything of note uh, for the remainder of our years? And he said, look, I'm an old man now. And he he was old. Uh, In 2007, he was old. But he said that he was not going to rest on his laurels. And so that's why he was active in so many causes, in so many marches and demonstrations and, and mentoring um, other national security whistleblowers and writing. He was prolific in his writing and he wrote very serious tomes. Uh, and then in just the last two years of his life, he, he released information classified at the top secret level. And he asked the Justice Department to prosecute him. This is one of the most selfless things I've ever heard of anybody doing every anywhere in any context. The, the whole point of this was, it, it requires a little bit of background. Um, the espionage charges against me, there were three of them, were dropped. I hadn't committed espionage. And so they were dropped. Um, the espionage charges against Chelsea Manning in the end, were commuted. So Chelsea Manning couldn't appeal up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Jeffrey Sterling was convicted of espionage and has standing to appeal, or had standing to appeal, um, but ran out of money. And frankly, he just didn't have it in him to keep up the fight any, any more than he had already fought. And so Dan was always hopeful that, God forbid, one of us should be charged with espionage, that we had the wherewithal to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court because he believed so strongly that the Espionage Act was unconstitutionally vague and unconstitutionally broad. But nobody had been able to get all the way up to that point at the Supreme Court. And so he thought, by God, I'm 90 years old. I have nothing to lose. I'm going to do it. And so he had held on to this top secret nuclear related information for decades, finally released it and said, I'm releasing it. It's clearly classified. And I demand that the Justice Department prosecute me under the Espionage Act. And they didn't. And I think that they didn't for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they like the status quo. They like being able to use the Espionage Act. Uh, as a weapon against national security whistleblowers. And secondly, I think that deep down they were afraid that Dan would win. He would win and then they would have to start back at the very beginning by rewriting the espionage act and being forced to write it narrowly so that it could be used against the people that it was meant to be used against. Those spies who were working against the United States for a foreign nation, not against journalists, not against publishers, not against whistleblowers, but against spies.
0: I know that uh, when you were going through your prosecution, um, he was uh, crucial in advising you on how to handle, uh, including what your lawyers were suggesting that you should do. Uh, I I know that I first met you at the time when you were having to decide whether to fight or accept a plea agreement. And I know that you were benefiting from having a connection with Dan Ellsberg where he could tell you, okay, yeah, I think what they're saying makes sense or, you know, whatever. Yes.
1: Yes. There, there was certainly not unanimity among my attorneys and I had 11 attorneys. Um, but there were sort of, analytic lines that were clearly divided clearly dividing them so my whistleblower attorneys were were adamant that I should fight this go to trial and fight it the risk was very very high i asked my criminal defense attorneys realistically if i go to trial and i lose what am i looking at and the answer unanimously was 12 to 18 years and the government was offering me 30 months of which i would do at a maximum 23. And I ended up doing the 23. So I talked to Dan about it. And Dan said, look, this idea of challenging the espionage act, this is not for you. He said, I would take the deal. I would take the deal. I had five kids. Yeah, and uh, And he saw the bigger picture. And you know, when this is happening to you too, it's hard to see the big picture. On the one hand, I had attorneys telling me this case is so much bigger than John Kiriyaku. this is this case is about every national security whistleblower who acts in the in the public interest. You have to go to trial. And I, I realized later on that when they were telling me that, and my criminal defense attorneys were telling me that, they were pumping me up for the fight, right? Because my inclination was to go into the office every day, and which is what I did. I went to their office every day. and, I'd say, please get a deal, make a deal, get me out of this. I, I'm going to kill myself. You got to help me make a deal. And they're like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. We're going to fight, fight, fight. And Well, they were doing that to me because they knew I was talking to friends or talking to the media and they wanted that to get back to the Justice Department that I was going to fight by God. I was going to fight until the very end. And you know what, And it, it, that turned out to work. But when I needed somebody to talk common sense off the record, that was Dan. That was Dan, yeah.
0: And then you went and served a sentence at Loretto Prison in Pennsylvania. And he was your pen pal. He was somebody that you could write to and he you you, you share in your piece, which I'll put up here for everyone. You should go to Consortium News and read it, you write The Godfather of Whistleblowers. And uh, he was somebody who you could write to uh, and he could write back to you. He, he kept you yeah, he did. In, engaged with you throughout the time that you were incarcerated.
1: And, and not just me, he would call my wife and check in and see how the kids were doing. And then he would write me a letter and he always would include a book. And more often than not, he had written the book, <laughs> you know, every time it was a different book. Daniel Ellsberg and reading, you know, reading about Dan in his 60s and 70s, like chaining himself to the fence of a, of a, of a Navy base or, or cutting through the fence to throw paint on a missile silo or, you know, blocking the only road leading to a nuclear power plant. It was, it was exciting, you know, and there were always photographs in the middle of these books and And then he would write a letter along with it. And I say in the piece, too, he would sign every single letter with love, Dan. He would always ask about my children and he would always sign it. Love, Dan. I saved all of those letters just because they were they were treasures to me. And, um, you know, even I don't think I've ever told you this, Kevin, but even the guards uh, at Loretto, with whom I had a very difficult relationship, as you recall, once pulled me aside, two of the guards pulled me aside and said, hey, your, uh, your boyfriend's in town. I said, what are you talking about? Because, hey, these guys and I, we disrespected each other so fundamentally, so deeply, but they said, no, no, we're kidding. Dan Ellsberg's at the college. He's giving a talk tonight. And I said, seriously? I mean, the, the town of Loretto, Pennsylvania, it has 1,200 people, and it has a very small Catholic college, And it has the prison. And the prison used to be a Catholic monastery. So the Bureau of Prisons bought the monastery, added two wings to it, and then ran it as a prison. So it turned out that, sure enough, that night, Dan was in Loretto. And it was like a Wednesday night. And he was giving a speech to the Department of, like, Ethics, I think it is what it was. And I said, are you guys going to go? And one of them said, hell no. And the other one said, actually, yeah, I'm going to go. And I said, would you tell him that I said hello and I said my best? And he actually did. I, w- I was shocked by it. I was wow. shocked. But this is the kind of power that Dan Ellsberg had over people. Like, you don't have to like him. You don't even have to agree with him. But you do have to respect him because he lived what he taught. And not many people can say that.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I had the privilege and fortune to be able to do with my editor-in-chief former boss Jane Hampshire was host these whistleblower dinners where we'd get people yeah. together. Unfortunately, you were in prison for most of them, but you did come to one before you went, I set, came to you, one where you were sent <laughs> off to prison. That's right. And, and, Dan uh, called. and, um, and so Tom Drake and Justin Raddick, um, yeah. and others would come over and Dan came to one and I remember the dinner, but I don't really remember it for an entirely positive reason but I'm kind of motivated to just say that this happened to you because Jaloria actually shared a similar experience in which he got into a debate with Dan Ellsberg about the two-party system. (laughs) And at the time, I was not about to vote for Obama. I believe I was going to vote for Ralph Nader, and Mm -hmm. that really upset Dan Ellsberg. And he was really convinced that if Mitt Romney was elected, (laughs) Iran would be bombed. And I was arguing with this octogenarian who was, you know, trying to convince me of the lesser of two evils. but <laughs> but those dinners were remarkable. And I've been thinking with the passing of Dan, how much I miss having that space, because it seems like something that the community of people could really use today is like that's sort of like, Regular, every two or three months, people get together, check in with each other, see how everyone's doing. We were getting updates on how Snowden was doing in Moscow, and it just helped us, I think, maintain our bearings as Obama escalated that war on whistleblowers.
1: So, so true. And, you know, I had essentially the same argument with Dan once Um, in... (laughs) in 2016 gary johnson who had been the governor of uh, new mexico and was then the libertarian party nominee for president asked if i would campaign with him and i like gary he's a good guy um so we went to 12 states together in the west states i had never been to i had never been to alaska for example or oregon and I got to go with, you know, a presidential candidate, and I would introduce him at each one of his stops. And we had such a good time. And Dan yelled at me, and he's like, he doesn't have any chance of winning. And I said, No, of course not. But I, I hate Obama so much that I, I just can't, I, I just can't vote for the Democrats right now. I'm, I'm so angry. And Hillary Clinton was just like Obama in 2016. I was mad at everybody and he said no but trump is going to win i said no trump's not going to win and my vote would be you know it wouldn't count anyway besides i said you know he could win new mexico and he's got a fighting chance in in utah i had i had written an op-ed that i think ran in gary's name in whatever the salt lake city newspaper is then i wrote one for the washington post saying why i was i was voting for a third party candidate And I used this awful, awful cliche. I said, voting for the lesser of two evils is still evil. And Dan just jumped up and down. He's like, look, we can try to fool ourselves as much as we want. But the fact is, we live in a two party country, a two party system, and you have to choose one or the other. And the Democrats are better than the Republicans. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I voted for Gary Johnson. Donald Trump got elected, and I reluctantly doggone it, I had to go back to the Democrats in 2020. But uh, but Dan felt very strongly about uh, about these issues. And let me add one other thing, if I could. Uh, in December 2019, Peter Kuznick, Dr. Peter Kuznick, who's a friend of ours and a, and a professor, an eminent professor at uh, American University here in Washington, the co-author with Oliver Stone of... Um, of the untold history of the United yeah, States. Yeah. And, uh,
0: Peter actually endorsed my book. Uh, oh, Gilded fantastic.
1: Your yes, yes, yes. Peter's a wonderful guy. And he had a, he had a Christmas party in December of 2019 and Dan happened to be in town, uh, visiting his friend, uh, Barbara Coppell. So Dan came to the dinner and Senator Mike Gravel, uh, was still alive. Thank God. And he came to the dinner And Cy Hirsch came to the dinner. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, I I can't believe I'm invited to this dinner. Like I wanted to sleep on the couch that night just so I didn't miss anything from these giants of American history, giants. And we all took pictures together. And I remember thinking, man, I am the luckiest guy in the world to know these people. It was just incredible. And you know, I I hate to say, Mike Ravel, Mike, Mike died, I'm going to say six months ago or so. He was buried this morning in uh, Arlington Cemetery. There was a ceremony this morning. And even though he was entitled to a 21 gun salute, uh, he asked in his will that there not be a 20 gun salute, 21 gun salute, because in death, he still wanted his, um, his antipathy for violence, uh, uh, to be carried forward, so uh, there there was no salute, but there was a beautiful ceremony for him today.
0: Um, it says he was he died in 2021,
1: but is it that long ago now?
0: Yeah, but could it have taken that long for the burial to happen in the Arlington Cemetery?
1: Uh, it's possible. It's it's odd because if you're being buried in the ground, uh, it's a it's a six to eight week wait. Uh, he was cremated and put in the columbarium. Uh, So I don't know why the wait was so long. Hmm. I can't believe it's been two years. I guess it has been. And, you know, I was proud. He and I met that night at Peter's party. And then um, a couple of months later, he asked me if if I would be his foreign policy advisor for his 2020 presidential campaign. I said I would be delighted. Here's a 90-something-year-old guy running for president. His campaign manager was 20 years old, this kid from from George Washington University, and we had the best time. It was just so much fun. Nobody yeah, took and the those series. kids,
0: those kids ran that Twitter account, the Gravel Institute, which became like the biggest craze in political <laughs> Twitter. Just uh, so, so before we leave from Dan, I didn't plan to spend as long with this, but I mean, ninety-two years old, you can understand why you would want to spend so much time talking about Dan Ellsberg. And there are just so many stories that can be told. Uh, And I'm not even sharing my own personal stories because I've done that in another place. Uh, This was about you. So I'd like to hear you tell the story because I find this to be one of the most incredible Dan Ellsberg stories I've heard in the last (laughs) week of what happened at the Penn Awards Gala in uh, Beverly Hills, California, which is really
1: Hollywood area of of California. It's the heart of Hollywood in, in 2016, I won the Penn first amendment award, which is a big deal. It was, it's one of the the big four literary awards with the Penn Faulkner, the Pulitzer and the Edgar Allan Poe. And I was so excited to, and I won it for letters from Loretto, the book that became doing time like a spy letters from Loretto that you published uh, very kindly. And so, um, I was so excited. I called Dan and I said, hey, Dan, because I wanted to invite him to come as my guest. I said, hey, I won the Penn First Amendment Award. There's going to be this big thing in Beverly Hills. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be there, too. Uh, They're giving Snowden an honorary award. And uh, he asked me to accept it on his behalf. I said, great. So let's sit at the same table. He said, great. So Dan, being Dan, just comes down all by himself, you know, no – no entourage or hangers on or even friends that he invited. So the whole table is like all my best friends from high school who live in California and my brother and my attorney, my entertainment attorney and Dan. And um, the other big winner for the night was Francis Ford Coppola, the director of the Godfather trilogy and Apocalypse Now and so many other just, you know, enormous uh, smash successes of cinema. He He won the, the Lifetime Achievement Award. So, the, the Penn folks gave out a good 20 awards before us. There was, you know, best poetry, best children's book, best translation, best free form, whatever. I, I don't even know what they were. And then at the end were the, the big three. So, Dan got up to speak first. And I say in this piece in uh, Consortium News, the Penn people were absolutely adamant that we stick to seven minutes. Seven minutes. and. I never, ever rehearsed for speeches, never. Because I figure if I don't know these issues by now, then shame on me. I don't deserve to be able to speak. So I just normally wing it. Well, this, man, I, I wrote the speech out. I practiced over and over and over again. And I got it to exactly seven minutes. So they called Dan up to the stage. And you know who doesn't know Daniel Ellsberg, especially in California? So he gets this rousing round of applause the the great, the famed Dan Ellsberg. And he goes up there and he just starts screaming and yelling about freedom and transparency and and Snowden and Snowden's a hero and we deserve to know what the government is doing. 30 minutes later, somebody from the Penn uh, organization like goes out on stage kind of gingerly, like, let's wrap it up, Mr. Ellsberg. So finally Dan finishes and they they call me up and I go up I, I go up and I, I give my tight seven minute address and I got this wonderful standing ovation. It was it was heartwarming. But like Dan, I didn't pull any punches in this speech. I went with guns blazing at the Obama administration. Um, And its use of the Espionage Act and its use of drones and the fact that the government lies to us and the director of national intelligence lies under oath and nobody cares. And I, I hit him hard. And then they call Francis Ford Coppola. So, I mean, the guy's won more Oscars than he can carry in his arms. You know, he's a big deal. And he goes up on stage. And he takes this folded speech out of his jacket pocket. And he says, he goes like this, where's the CIA guy? And I said, right here. And he looks at me and he says, you seem like a nice guy. But I am sick and tired of people criticizing my president. And everybody started to laugh, chuckle, you know, snort. Because they thought it was a joke. I knew it wasn't a joke. And he just like unleashed, like, who are we to make fun and criticize the president? The president works so hard. He has the hardest job in the world. And we're standing up there in our soapboxes yelling and criticizing. Well, there's it's a big ballroom. There were 600 people in the audience and there's an echo. And Dan had hearing aids and he just couldn't he just couldn't hear. He couldn't understand what Coppola was saying. So he leans over to me and he says, what's he saying? And I said, he's criticizing us, Dan. He's what? I said, he's criticizing us. And Dan stands up. Remember, we're in the very front row, right in front of Coppola. Dan stands up and he goes, fuck you, Coppola. And Coppola looks at him and he says, I've said enough. I'm not saying anymore. And he just walks off stage. (laughs) Silence. Utter, complete, and total silence from these 600. And I say in the piece, we're talking about 600. I don't mean 600 people that they pulled in off the street to fill the seats. I mean, these are the most important producers, directors. There were A-list actors. I was introduced by Jared Leto. Uh, uh, Dan was introduced by... Oh, that famous guy, not Ethan Hawke, the other one. Anyway, A-list guy, uh, the showrunner for some HBO series introduced Coppola. Um, so these are serious people. Silence. And then Kate McKinnon from, from uh, uh, Saturday Night Live was the MC. So she comes back on stage. The pen people turn the lights on and she goes, on that note, Drive safely, everyone. (laughs) And she kind of smiles like, what just happened here? And so the pen people run up to our table. Oh, my God, we're so sorry. We had no idea he was going to do something like this. And I said, I said, I've been criticized by men far more important than Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. And then Dan is like, fuck him. I don't (laughs) have to take that shit from him or from anybody else. And I was like, wow, as if he wasn't already my hero. Yeah. I mean, this guy, he didn't take it from anybody, not from anybody. I was just so proud to be associated with him that night. And then a couple of guys came up to us. Um, they were partners at, uh, what's it called? Um, the big talent agency, uh, CCCM. Uh,
0: well, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they, and they gave us their cards to say that they ran their speakers bureau and would we like to do speeches uh-huh. together. Oh my God, it was just amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, Coppola may have made one of the best Vietnam War movies, but uh, yeah. obviously the guy who helped end the Vietnam War didn't have to take anything like that from Coppola. So that's, that's an incredible story. And I'm glad that you shared it uh, because it says so much about Dan And uh, I was also pleased that in the last four or five months that Dan started to lose his self-control that he had tried to practice when it came to the news media, because he wanted to still be able to get his columns printed at the post, or he wanted to... Be able to communicate with someone like Charlie Savage at the New York Times, who he could share stories with. But towards the end of his life, when he knew he was going to die, he started to tell the truth about how these organizations had abused him in the yes. past. And that's what I want to lead into here is to show you this clip. Um, so over the weekend, he died on June 16th. That was a Friday. So You have the 17th and 18th. Not only do you have Friday's coverage, but you get a whole weekend coverage. You get the weekend shows that also get to pay tribute to Dan Ellsberg. There are plenty of opportunities for segments to run that showed you some of the highlights of Dan Ellsberg's life. And by and large, everything mostly went well for Dan Ellsberg. But there was this segment and one of his sons, Michael Ellsberg, called it out. John Cusack. Cusack was calling it out because it does something that was very obvious and egregious during the last 10 years of Dan's life. He was used in such a way that would put pressure well, on people like you, John, um, to make you seem like you had been incorrect in the way that you came forward as a whistleblower. But Dan Ellsberg is the good whistleblower. So I want to play this clip. This is on PBS NewsHour. And uh, the person on the left of the screen, for those who are viewing, is Jonathan Capehart, and he's a columnist for the Washington Post. On the other side is David Brooks, and he's a columnist for the New York Times. And so I'm just going to play this. This is like four or five minutes, and I'll stop it a few times so we can give um, a bit of a response, but I do think it's worth it because of what's being said. And it shows you where the media is and what's become their calcified understanding of leaks and whistleblowing over the last decade. words. This is him from a 2017 NewsHour interview.
1: The system that puts everything on the decisions of one man, It's crazy. And when I held that piece of paper in my hand, the word in my mind was evil, evil. This should not exist. This was the operational plan annually for the Joint Chiefs of Staff that had been approved by General Eisenhower. And I thought there shouldn't be anything in the world that corresponds to this, but there has been then and ever since.
0: I have to point out something about what they did there because it's an error. I don't know if you've picked up on it, John, but uh, the book that they put up in the background is The Doomsday Machine. It's a really important book. People should go read it. Very important. But it is not the Pentagon Papers. No, it's not. It (laughs) has
1: nothing whatsoever to do with the Pentagon Papers. (laughs) And so I just want to
0: point out that they're conflating two things. Um, The comment that he made there wasn't actually about the Pentagon Papers. The thing he's talking about with the Joint Chiefs of Staff enjoy, it involves the nuclear weapons of That's the United right. States and not the Vietnam War. So That's sorry, right. I just felt compelled to make that <laughs> correction.
2: Spent several minutes talking about classified documents should not be taken out of where they belong <laughs> in the Donald Trump context. And I generally agree with that. I think most leakers uh, are wrong. I thought Edward Soden was terrible. But Daniel Ellsberg shows that you can do it right. And so he did it over many years. He tried to go up the normal chain of command to show documents to senators and other things. And so it was, he went through all the hoops you should go through to prove that it's not just you being an egomaniac. It's you with a legitimate cause. And then when he finally leaked those 7,000 documents to the Times and then eventually the Post, um, you could at least say, well, he, A, went through all the hoops. B, did it with the f- full expectation he'd spend the rest of his life in jail. Okay. And so that to me is doing it the right way, a, a thing that probably should almost never be done except in extreme circumstances, which he was in.
0: Okay, I'm gonna stop there. What and uh, you can say whatever you want to David Brooks first.
1: Yeah, David Brooks, what, what nonsense that is. You know, this is actually very common um, with uh, revisionist history when, when it comes to whistleblowers. Uh, Dan was condemned by just about everybody at the time. Uh, Henry Kissinger called him the most dangerous man in America. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, tried to uh, tried to uh, not even try to, but ordered his plumbers to to steal Dan's psychiatric records out of the office of his psychiatrist uh, in order to um, to leak those documents to the media and and have people not not listen to uh, what Dan had to say. Uh, the idea that that most any whistleblower can go through his chain of command and then sleep at night is just a fallacy. It's just, you know, what would what, what I have done. My chain of command created the torture program. Uh, the Congressional Oversight Committees approved of the torture program, right? They, they funded the torture program. They appropriated the money for it. They authorized it. They passed a secret authorization bill. So you can't always go through the chain of command. You know, Tom Drake went through the chain of command uh, and ended up with uh, what nine counts of espionage. And the information that that Ed Snowden put out there confirmed and reaffirmed what Tom Drake had told us. So that's just silly revisionist history. It doesn't even make any sense.
0: Okay, so let's uh, let's play the other half here. From uh, let's let's. It's not that it's much better, but let's get what Jonathan Capehart had to say
2: here. I think he will be remembered as a hero, someone who stood up for principles, someone who had a strong belief and then tried to do something about it. I I agree with David. I would add one more thing because you mentioned the name Edward Snowden and a lot of people were comparing the two when Snowden leaked all of those documents saying he's the modern day Ellsberg. And I wrote a column then 10 years ago this week that said, no, he's not. Because while they both leaked documents, Daniel Ellsberg did something Edward Snowden didn't do. He stayed in this country, he turned himself in, and he um, allowed himself to be held accountable, something Edward Snowden still refuses to do. And in that regard, that's why I say someone like Daniel El- Ellsberg should be considered a hero, because he did something um, that stood up for his, for his beliefs and his value system and then suffered the consequences.
1: Okay, more nonsense From Jonathan Capehart, it was Dan Ellsberg who said that Ed Snowden was the new Dan Ellsberg. Okay, so if Dan Ellsberg saying it, I'm going to listen to Dan Ellsberg and believe what Dan Ellsberg has to say. Secondly, the reason that Ed Snowden didn't stay in the United States and face the music, as Capehart said, was uh, exactly why Dan said that he shouldn't stay in the in the country and face the music because. The Espionage Act is used as a cudgel against national security whistleblowers, and it is unconstitutionally broad and unconstitutionally vague, and it it does not allow for an affirmative defense. So Ed Snowden, who told me to my face that he was willing to come home and willing to go to prison if he could just stand up in court and explain to the judge why he did what he did, and the Justice Department said never— That's why he didn't stay.
0: And I just, I I have to point out here that what is so infuriating about both of these pundits is that this is supposed to be them paying tribute to Dan Ellsberg, but all they can do is talk about themselves. Yes. Talking about things they wrote 10 years ago or an opinion that they developed 10 years ago. And for look, This is David Brooks. He wrote The Solitary Leaker. It was a column for The New York Times. It's an embarrassment. It describes how he believes Snowden betrayed basically everything a person could betray in society. But then here you have Jonathan Capehart, Capehart actually writing about how he thinks Snowden did not follow Ellsberg's example. And then this is the thing that I can't get over And I want your reaction. He then had to write, Ellsberg has a point on Snowden where he said, "In these are the first words of it, I have no rebuttal to Ellsberg here. And why did he do that? He did that because Dan Ellsberg saw what Jonathan Capehart wrote, or he saw what people like David Brooks were writing. And he got something printed in the Washington Post because Dan had access to the newspapers. And he made a point of making this argument that Snowden was correct to flee. And he said that the country had changed. The country was not the same country that it was when he came forward as a whistleblower. So it made sense for Edward Snowden to leave so that he could speak out and be the advocate that he became on uh, mass surveillance and privacy. And so I just find it just audacious, very audacious of Jonathan Capehart to sit there on this show, knowing that Dan Ellsberg is dead in the grave and can't respond to him, and now make an argument that Dan Ellsberg already slapped down, we can all see it. It's there from a decade ago.
1: Yeah, oh, you're so right. And you know, it's like these guys sit in their ivory tower and they just pontificate or bloviate, I might even say, uh, without even acknowledging that if if everyone shared their opinion, their entire national news staff would be in prison on espionage charges. But they don't want to talk about that.
0: All right. So let's wind down our conversation and uh, let's focus on the most pressing matter at hand, which is that Julian Assange is still facing extradition to the United States and President Joe Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland and others in the Biden administration have not stepped forward to halt what has been condemned by numerous civil liberties, human rights, and press freedom organizations around the world, as well as parliamentarians and leaders of Australia. And this continues. And so um, it's a, let's put up on the screen here so people can see over at Consortium News. Uh, Joe Loria has a great rundown of what we might be able to anticipate. Biden would need his pound of flesh from Assange. That's the headline. And uh, the subheading is U.S. President would not likely move on the case without some face-saving measure to ward off pressure from the cia and his own party so you know just giving his opinion that we're not going to be able to see this resolved or brought to an end without the cia getting the outcome that they would want in the case we know the pressure that they put on julian assange to force him out of the ecuador embassy um and so he looks forward to what kind of things we could see happen next. And I'll just give you the five possible scenarios and then you can comment on whatever you want from this. But I think this is good for Joe to outline. Assange may have his appeal against extradition heard by the high court. He may have his appeal rejected and be put on a plane to the United States. That's number two. Three, that plane may be stopped by an injunction from the European Court of Human Rights. Four, a last minute plea deal may be worked out guaranteeing Assange's eventual freedom, or the least likely is number five, that the U.S. may abruptly drop its charges against him. And uh, he goes through each of the possibilities. But, you know, your comment about what we could see happen with Assange in the next few weeks or month.
1: Well, I've been hearing a lot of rumors that, Uh, there could be some sort of face-saving deal uh, being negotiated right now. Uh, Nobody's willing to talk about the possibility publicly, but the way I hear it is that there are talks about Julian taking a plea to something, some sort of national security crime, maybe uh, even an espionage act charge, and then... um, being sentenced to time served, and then being expelled from the UK and returning home to Australia. That's the one possibility. The other possibility is that the Biden administration, for reasons that have never been clear, I think to any of us, really do want to extradite him and put him on trial in the Eastern District of Virginia. I hope that's the unlikelier of the two, uh, the less likely of the two scenarios. Uh, But I don't know. I think it's, it's impossible to know. But I think Joe Loria is right on. These really are the possibilities. Uh, I'm a little bit worried about the European Court of Human Rights, even though there are three precedents, three precedents, where where British nationals were, uh, were uh, not extradited to the United States solely because these three prisoners had some sort of mental illness that had been documented. And because of the way the United States uses solitary confinement, that was deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment. And so none of these three men were extradited to the United States. So with that precedent, people are hopeful that maybe the European Court of Human Rights will put a stop to this. With that said, there's no guarantee that the European Court of Human Rights will even hear this case. And we heard, what, five, six, seven months ago, maybe they don't want to hear this case. So I'm hoping that that cooler minds are are prevailing and that there are some kind of uh, conversations underway that we just are not aware of. I I hope this does go away.
0: Well, we have to hold on to some kind of hope and try to continue to build some way out of this for Julian and his family. Uh, we think about his kids. Of course, you have five kids, so you can empathize with what it's like right now for Julian to be separated and not have any ability to see his young kids growing up. Uh, And of course, he just married Stella. So to not be able to live with her in the first years of their marriage is something you can understand. He might want to end all of this and no longer go through what he's going through. So I don't hold anything That's against right. him if he's looking no for way. a layout. At no all. way. I
1: agree. I agree but, completely.
0: But I guess the closing, the closing question that I have for you is how important is it for people to, you know, be out there and be open in their support of Julian Assange? How, how important yeah. would it be to show up to the arraignment hearing or to be outside the justice department or to be, um, in the area around this courthouse, because I see, I see, I saw Chris hedges, he hopped on a plane, he went to London. He seems to think that something could happen at any moment. We really feel like something really dramatic could happen and it could be a point of no turning back. Like now the justice department has this authority, has this, ability to hold this over our head. I mean, they kind of do. They they can charge us. They just haven't successfully convicted any journalists. But they do sort of have this thing now where they might be able to harass independent journalists. I was concerned that with what they're doing, I don't think that it's the same. I'm not trying to say it's the same. But I'm wondering if U.S. prosecutors... With what happens with Trump, with with what has happened with Trump, I'm wondering if that becomes something that works its way into the processes of the Justice Department as well, where like if they know a a journalist has obtained documents, do they have people demand the return of those documents? And if you don't, then they accuse you of violating the Espionage Act.
1: It's a good question. And nobody yet knows the answer to it. But you're right. You know, I told you a few minutes ago that my attorneys told me that my case was bigger than John Kiriakou. Well, this case is bigger than just uh, Julian Assange. This case goes to the heart of the, of the First Amendment to the Constitution. This goes to the heart of, of the news industry and, and what journalism is in America. Because if Julian Assange is successfully prosecuted, if the, if the uh, Department of Justice can successfully bring a case against a working journalist, or even if you don't think he's a journalist, a working editor, then we're all liable to be charged with espionage, all of us. And that uh, that's not a place that I, I want to be in.
0: No, not at all. And since we started with Dan, I'll just end that, you know, this was the cause of Dan Ellsberg for the last uh, decade, seeing yeah. freedom for Julian Assange, Uh, I believe that one of his parting wishes was that, uh, well, not only would we uh, find uh, a a better path forward and and abandon this protracted stalemate of a war in Ukraine, which bears too many similarities to Vietnam, but that we would also encourage whistleblowing and that we would fight for uh, the end of this espionage act and its use against people who are media sources and anybody who's a publisher.
1: That's right, I couldn't agree more. All
0: right, well, John, thank you for joining. It was really good to talk with you. Uh, Why don't you tell people where they can find
1: your work? Sure, thanks. I I, uh, I post everything on Substack, so it's johnkiriaku.substack.com and I write regularly for Consortium News and Covert Action Magazine.
0: All right, thank you, John. Thank you.